0: Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the place where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we do have the power to make this happen. So by now, I hope you're familiar with our concept that evolution happens under moments of intense pressure and that the next evolutionary step for humanity could be one of consciousness consciously chosen. We believe that emergence from complex systems is a regular feature of the evolution of consciousness and that our system is more complex now than it ever has been, so it's well ripe for an emergent step. We have said several times now that no problem is solved from the mindset that created it. But while our current mindset is clearly not up to the task of solving all of the totally mind-bending crises, emergencies, and, and frankly devastating horror that assails many, many parts of our world just now. We can change our mindsets. This is one of the absolute keys to what we want to do at Accidental Gods. We can change our mindsets. Neuroplasticity is a thing. And so in today's podcast... I want to look at this and see how we can use that neuroplasticity, how we can choose what we think and choose what we feel and use, choosing what we feel and choosing what we think, to change the structural integrity of our brains. And this is not going to undo the hard problem of consciousness that we got into slightly the very edge. We dipped our toe in the water in the last podcast. I don't necessarily believe, I actually, I don't believe that consciousness resides in the brain, but there is no question that by changing the neurochemistry and the neuronal wiring of our brains, we can change the way that we are. We can change the way that we think, and we can change the way that we feel, and we can change the ways that we experience the world. So if we want to be the best that we can be, and frankly, I think our times call for that, nothing less is good enough now, then part of the quest for that is understanding how we work and using the understanding of that, using the feedback mechanisms that we can get, using the cycles and the processes that we understand now to help us to hone our capacities to be the best that we can be, and then to see what is the better that collectively we could become. So I want to start by looking at at the absolute core principle. So I want to start by looking at one of the absolute core principles of neuroplasticity. This is Hebb's postulate, or Hebbian plasticity, after a guy called Donald Hebb, who proposed it way back in the 1940s, which is, frankly, little short of miraculous, given the kind of equipment they had or didn't have at the time. This is what he wrote. The general idea is an old one, that any two cells or systems of cells that are repeatedly active at the same time will tend to become associated so that activity in one facilitates activity in the other. When one cell repeatedly assists in firing another, the axon of the first cell develops synaptic knobs or enlarges them, if they already exist, in contact with the soma of the second cell. And yes, that's neurogeek speak, and I love it, and very possibly you don't, which is fine, because we have broken this down a long time ago, to a much more digestible, memorable, and frankly, comprehensible aphorism. And this is the one I want you to take on board. It says, what fires together, wires together. We're going to say that again, because I really want you to take this one home. What fires together, wires together. This is really crucial. And it's It's, relatively speaking, only just beginning to come into modern parlance. There's a thing that it seems to take about a century for scientific stuff to filter into the mainstream. There are people out there who still seem to think that Freud is the apex of modern psychology, which is quite scary. It's the reason that our politicians are running at least a century behind in their thinking, because they are the last ones to get on board with anything that actually makes us different. Um, And so from 1949, right through when I was a vet student, I'm not going to tell you exactly when, but it wasn't that long ago, um, we were taught that neuronal architecture was static, that everything else was plastic, our bones, our muscles, our skin, even cartilage, you know, remodels over time. But nerve cells were completely pristine. They were totally static. Once you got to teenage, that was it. They were never going to change again. And we believed it. I have no idea why looking back, but I guess at that point, our job is to memorise stuff for the exams, not to actually question why it should be that one particular set of cell structures has to last an entire lifetime and, and everything else remodels. And I don't even know why people believed it in the first case. I think they didn't question it partly because there's a lot of safety in this if you're frankly a middle-aged white person probably a male type you were probably brought up at a public school because that's what all our professors were and if you have a belief system that tells you that you cannot change your mind that it's actually impossible physiologically then you have no responsibility to do so. The obverse of that is that now we know that we can change our minds, then I think we do have a responsibility to endeavour to change them. So in the changing of this, we want to look a little bit more at neuroscience and how it works, but before we even go into that, I want us to be clear that this is what we might call neuroscience 101. This is like when we learned physics physics, back at school for, in my case, O grades. I am that old. Yours probably GCSEs or O levels or whatever you do down in England in school these days. Um, Anyway, you build models of atoms with ping pong balls and straws and everything is a a nucleus with a, a kind of storm of electrons swirling around it in nice pretty layered patterns. And then you get to university and you discover quantum mechanics and string theory and the double slit experiment and, you know, everything is actually mostly vacuum and the bits that aren't oscillate between being a particle and a wave and they only turn into one or the other when uh, a physicist actually looks at them. I suspect there's more to it than that, actually, but we're not going there yet. And the main thing is that the billiard ball or tennis ball, or ping-pong ball, whatever it is, the little balls and the atoms with the whizzy electrons, may be pretty much inaccurate. It is pretty much inaccurate. But it works well enough when you're sitting on the chair and you're not falling through the chair or the floor or the whole of the planet. Even physicists who spend all their lives utterly immersed in quantum mechanics don't cross the middle of the M25, because... It may be that I am mostly vacuum and the cars coming at me at 70 are mostly vacuum, but actually the impact is still going to hurt. So, so that's a long way of saying that what we are doing is the billiard ball and straw version of neuroscience. It is a lot more complex than, than I am about to give you. It is quite a bit more nuanced, and I am really happy to go into this in a lot more detail at some point. But for what we need now, and actually for what we would ever need, I think, to be able to put our Accidental Gods program into practice, what fires together wires together, and the kind of structural metaphors we build around that, are completely fine and they work in the way that not crossing the road when the cars are coming works. That's how you stay alive. This is how we can change our brains. So let's have a look at what fires together, wires together actually means. If I have a thought, any thought, um, so the climate emergency means that we're all going to die horribly in, in Quite a short space of time because the evil politicians haven't done anything about it might be a thought that one might have uh, in the current climate quite a lot it's certainly more or less what the deep adaptation paper says and supposing i just read the deep adaptation paper if you haven't you might sleep better not having done so but it, it probably is worth it anyway you've just read it and you have this particular thought and that links up a particular set of neurons that haven't linked up before. And as Hebb said, the first time they link up, they link up fairly weakly. The neurochemical connections between them are transient. The number of neurons required to make that thought is few because let's say there's just a single neuron linking round to another neuron, to another neuron, to another neuron in a kind of a little net of its own but it's small and it's weak and it's transient. But it creates a particular emotional charge, in this case, fear, but also a bit of self-righteousness and despair and things that are probably quite familiar. And they have a charge. It may be that we register that charge as I don't really like this, but it is a blip of feeling. And we are feeling beings and a blip of feeling is better than no feeling at all. And so it might well be that tomorrow... I come back to that pattern and i have that thought again and i indulge in those blips of self-righteousness and despair and horror and terror and fear and all of those things and what fires together wires together everything has just fired again and it's wired that little bit more strongly and it's built more connections neuron to neuron axon to axon so that it's a little easier and the little blips of feeling are a little bit more powerful and therefore a little bit more addictive, because we like feeling, and we like sharp, potent feelings, and we particularly like self-righteousness. It's exceptionally addictive. My tribe right, other tribe wrong. Look around you in the world. This happens a lot. It's a very addictive set of feelings. Tribalism is part of our evolutionary heritage, and I think it's one of the things that we have to transcend. So my little neuronal net has just got a bit bigger. If neural nets don't work for you, then you can imagine it as walking a circle in a field or a trackway in a field. The first time you go around, it, it barely makes a dent in the grass. But if you go back tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and maybe many times tomorrow, in the end, you've got a big, deep, wide path and it's really easy to go on. If you go up the hills behind my house, there are sheep tracks and there are deer tracks and they are tracks that at one point a deer or a sheep went along and you could barely see that it was there. But many generations of deer and sheep later, these are fairly obvious tracks on the hill because we like taking tracks. It's better than moving on to open ground. And our thoughts like going round cycles that we know. It's easy, it's faster, it's very familiar and it gives us the emotions that we have come to know And that whether we think we enjoy them or not, there's a bit of the deep recesses of our brain that does like them. So what we want to do, if we want to not keep going and keep wiring that piece together as it wires and fires and fires and wires, is gain a sense of ourself such that we can step off that track. Which means we need to be able to see it coming, which means we need to have the capacity to see our thoughts and our feelings. And one of the things that we want to become aware of is the balance between our thoughts and our feelings, or our conscious and what I would like to call our underconscious, because subconscious and unconscious all have connotations beyond this. So one of the other real keys of neuroscience is that Every decision we make, every single one, is made at the level of our midbrains and our brain stems first, our amygdala, our thalamus, our hypothalamus. The bits of us that react so much faster than our thinking minds. So our amygdala can can process stuff at the rate of 10 milliseconds. And it takes our cerebral cortex 120 milliseconds. And A not very large number of milliseconds and another not very large number of milliseconds does not sound that different. But 10 to 120 is the difference between an hour and a day, or a day and a fortnight, or a month and a year. It's huge. If we have the metaphor of my cerebral cortex is my crazy old uncle in the attic, and my amygdala is the teenager downstairs, then... This is the teenager noticing that somebody has just moved in next door, going and having a look over the fence, deciding we don't like their pheromones uh, or whatever, their colour, their shape of their hair, the colour of their eyes, the sound of their voices come back in and we have planted the barbed wire and the machine gun emplacements and set out everything to get rid of these people and got rid of them before Crazy Uncle in the Attic has even kind of wandered downstairs and goes, D- did somebody move in next door? And the teenager downstairs is going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're they're really bad to their cats. We don't like them. They're horrible to cats. And Crazy Uncle in the Attic goes up and starts firing off Facebook messages and tweets about how terrible these people are to their cats. And it doesn't matter if the whole of the rest of the neighborhood comes back and goes, you know, they don't actually have any cats Or actually, they run a cat sanctuary. They're really nice to their cats and they feed them and they look after them and they have baskets of kittens and they're gorgeous because the bit that's made the decisions has made its decision and it gives the excuses to the crazy uncle in the attic, which is the bit of us that thinks. All of the work, all of the work that has ever been done shows that we make our decisions at the level of our amygdala And then we layer over it what we call post-hoc rationalisation. We feed ourselves the excuses that give us a chance to be self-righteous about the decisions that our amygdalas have already made. And this is from where to live, to what clothes to buy, to whether we cycle to work or drive to work, to what car we buy, to what partners we make, to what political parties we follow, to what programmes we pick up on the internet, And I think if we are going to become the best that we can be, at the very least, we need to be able to see the processes of our amygdalas and our midbrains and perhaps be able to at least enter into dialogue with them. It may not prove to be possible to override them, but I don't think that's true. I think it is. We'll go into why in another podcast, because this would be a very deep and long rabbit hole. Ask me about it in a webinar. I would really like to be able to go into this, but this is not the place or the time where this podcast will get too long. We need to be able to see the process of this happening. So I have I have another image for you, which is the image of a lava lamp. And I have discovered that lava lamps are back, that you don't have to be of a certain age born in a particular part of last century for a lava lamp to make sense. So imagine a lava lamp. If you don't know what one is, Google is your friend. It's a a long oily thing that was in vogue back in the 70s where a coloured gloop of something usually orange arises from the bottom and travels slowly in various forms up to the top where it kind of dissipates. So imagine a very short lava lamp. Imagine a very short lava lamp with a very big gloop of orange stuff from the bottom that comes up very fast and hits the top and bursts. And it's quite messy and not much fun to watch. And this is what happens when our amygdalas start pulsing, feeling at us, and we get angry and tense and despairing and rageful, or we get ecstatic and our tribe won, and we're going to flatten the opposition. Can you feel it? Even just speaking about this, I can feel my lava lamp growing shorter and the links between my midbrain and my cerebral cortex growing fatter and thicker and charged. But suppose we did the work that made the lava lamp much, much, much longer and the process of the oil evolving from the bottom slower and more distinct and more discreet. And now I see a bubble arise and it takes longer to form and it takes a long, long time to go all the way up to the top and blip. And if I can do that, then I have time to step back and go, you know that bubble that feeling of self-righteousness or despair or I'm going to flatten the opposition or whatever else. I just don't have to engage with that. I can let it go. And this is what mindfulness gives us. Whatever we like to call it. Mindfulness, meditation, contemplation, possibly prayer. We could argue about what prayer means. But the process of sitting still and watching myself happen. This is what makes the lava lamp bigger. It's what allows us to see our thoughts arise and the feelings behind them. And here's another little factoid for you. Somebody's grad student had way too much time on their hands. Apparently, I am told, we have between 70 and 100,000 thoughts every day, depending on what we're doing, how busy we are. And 98% of those thoughts are exactly the same as the ones we had yesterday. Stop and think about that for a moment. Imagine each one of those thoughts is a neural network. And what fires together, wires together. So these are neural networks that are quite big and fire quite easily, and that have entrained within them an awful lot of our thinking capacity. If we measure our thinking capacity in the number of neurons we have, and hard problem of consciousness aside, I think that's probably not a bad premise at the moment. And imagine if we didn't have all of those thoughts, if we were free to have original, new thoughts. There is quite an interesting meditation that we do on the courses, and and if we all come together and do some accidental God's Courses, I would really like to introduce this, but you can do it anyway, where you sit in meditation, not for very long, because this is quite frustrating, but say 10 minutes, and you write down every thought. And you do that every day for a week. And then you look at what you've written. How many of the thoughts I have today are exactly the same as the ones I had yesterday and the ones I will have tomorrow? And imagine if I could see every one of those in advance and step off the track and just not have it. I don't need to have it. I know where it's going. Oh my God, the government hasn't done anything about the climate emergency. We're all going to die horribly. I could stop that at oh my God. I could even stop it before oh my God arises because I know it. It's okay. I don't need to tell myself again. And in the not telling myself again, I could produce space to allow something else To be my reality. And that's one of the choices that I have. We all have. If we can do the work so that we can see the thoughts arising and we choose not to have them, then what do we do? Then do we just sit in neutrality and wait for another thought to arise with all of its attendant feelings of whatever despair, self righteousness, hope, joy, wonder? Or we could create a default feeling space that we go to of joy, wonder, compassion, connection to the other than human world, so that every time I stop with a thought process that is not productive for me, I can move instead to a feeling process that is productive to me. And because what fires together wires together, the pathway of moving to that feeling process becomes very familiar and very open and very accessible. And that is part of what we want to do when we're building our four steps, our reawakening into connection, our growing into coherence. As we grow into coherence, which is the process of seeing my own process arise, and I choose not to have a thought, then I can default back into the place from which I make connections. And the process of doing that becomes something that I can do with increasing ease it becomes a habit, and habits are built, and habits become also networks of things that have fired together a lot and therefore wire together a lot. So that's it for now. We'll look more deeply into growing into coherence in the next podcast and possibly the one after. Until then, thank you for listening. Thanks to Caro C for sound production, sound engineering, and particularly for the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for being the other half of everything, for all of the techno stuff, for the website and for keeping it all together. If you want to read more or if you want to join the membership programme, we're at accidentalgods.life and at Accidental Gods on the various social media. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.